The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Well, I'd like you to take your Bibles now and open them to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And today we come to the last verses of this third chapter, and it will close out our study of these two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. And I've remarked many times about the character of this church. Through our studies, we've looked at their character, that this church was a model church. It was one that Paul very dearly loved, and Paul used them as a good example of faith, love, and hope, and those are just the triple graces of exemplary Christianity. This this church was one that was active in gospel ministry. They had a witness that went out to all the surrounding areas. And yet, like all good churches that have influence on others, Satan assails the church. Satan attacks the church. And this church found this to be true, that they had attacks from within and without. On the inside, there were false teachers that arose that confused and obfuscated the truth. Uh, These were attacks on their spiritual well-being. And then on the outside, there were also attacks, there were persecutions, there were assaults upon that would often cause physical harm, and of course that would many times also affect their spiritual and mental well-being. Well, both of those avenues of attack played into the misunderstanding of the apostles' teachings here in these two uh, letters that, that Paul sent to them. And, of course, he had visited the church sometime before and established it there. And they were confused about what he taught. And the enemy is always seeking to do this, seeking to destroy the believer's faith in Christ and also, of course, the, the hope of the Lord's return. Well, in our study of this third chapter, we've seen how the disorderly in the church needed to be warned. And Paul said, you need to put some of these people out of the church if they don't comply, if they don't obey the orders of sanctification and of orthodoxy, then these are people that need to be put out. If they detract from this Christian trilogy of faith, love, and hope, then eventually what will happen is they will destroy the church from within. So these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, are the apostles' response to shut down error and to return the church to the model that they had been. Now, if you do much study of this, you'll find that some believe that this really wasn't a widespread problem in Thessalonica, the things that are discussed here, but it was a problem, and if Paul did not address it, and if something wasn't done about it, if discipline wasn't enacted, then uh, the church would have more and more trouble. So after dealing with these problems, the apostle ends this letter with these words in Second Thessalonians 3, verses 16 through 18. He says, Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Our message today is peace in God's presence. What I'd like to do is to take you back through this letter and show you how confusion and adversity can destroy our peace. Now Paul closes the letter with a personal note of assurance that God would give them peace. God is always there for us. In our obedience, if we are obedient to God, God will always be there for us. He will never forsake us. So we're reminded of these blessed words that we see in Scripture where we read that I will never leave you or forsake you. And of course, the Christian has that hope always in him that the Lord is with us. Now notice in the 16th verse, it says, The Lord himself will bring peace. There is peace in God's presence, and he will use all means, every good, 
at his righteous disposal to make that happen. So we're going to discuss this. But before we get into our, our outline of the message today, I'd like us to look at verse number 17, where the apostle says, The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. Now, we had a good bit of discussion uh, concerning one of Satan's tactics that he used to destroy the confidence of these Christians. In the first part of the second chapter, Paul hints that there was a letter that was forged in his name. This letter was sent to the church, and it was a letter that claimed that the day of Christ was at hand, and the persecution that this church was experienced was an indicator that the last days of the tribulation were upon them. Now, of course, if that was true, then the promise that God would deliver the church from wrath was voided. And so this was an attempt by someone outside the church to undermine the apostles' doctrine. It was to ruin their assurance of God's promises and also that every word that Paul spoke to them was truth. And so it was an attempt to make Paul appear fickle, to look changeable, uncertain, and undependable in what he taught the church. Paul was right before about this, that God had told him that they would not experience the wrath of the last days. Then it would appear that God had changed his mind. His promises were not sure, and that would mean that God himself was not worthy of unfailing trust. So we wonder then, when when this happens, do we really know what God's going to do next? Do we have to wonder about that? Is salvation in danger if God changes his mind on us? And these Corinthians, or rather the Thessalonians, had to think that if Jehovah God is no better than that, then he's not better than the false gods, the mythological gods that we worship And they were quite certain of their instability. So forged letters, these were a problem in the earliest days of the church. Now this verse then, verse 17, gives us some insight into the way that Paul circumvented letters that claimed to be from him. Now what Paul would do as he wrote his letters, he would dictate them to a secretary or what we would call an amanuensis. I'm not sure all the reasons that Paul did that. Some speculate that Paul's eyesight wasn't very good. It may be that his handwriting was hard to read. If it was anything like mine, once the ink is dry, there's no hope any longer. And I can't even read it sometimes. So if I'm going to write you a handwritten letter, I probably won't do it myself. I'll dictate it to to Letha and let her elegantly script it on perfumed lavender paper and seal it with wax, and uh, you'll be able to read it. So I I don't know all the reasons for Paul's dictation, but you can imagine that using several different people to uh, take the dictation and write the letters that anyone who read them wouldn't be able to discern if it was really from the apostle. So to remedy that, Paul would usually have one section of the letter that he would write in his own handwriting, usually the salutation, and so that would help to authenticate that the letter was truly from him. So now we return to the 16th verse and the apostles' closing thoughts, and these verses afford us an opportunity to review the letter and to examine how God gives peace by all means. He gives it in all ways. This is what the apostle desires for the church. He desires their peace. These are people tossed on a turbulent sea. They encountered persecutions, the false teachers. They had troubles from within, from the membership. These problems they experienced were overwhelming. And here we're talking about inexperienced Christians. They haven't been saved for very long And they couldn't handle this vast array of Satan's tactics that were thrown at them. And neither did Paul expect them to be able to withstand it in their own strength. And this is something that we certainly do need to know and learn. That no matter how experienced we are, no matter how long that we've been a Christian, we're no match for the devil. 
He's too cunning. There's too much craftiness. He's been around too long. We are no match for him in our own strength. And so the Bible tells us to take heed lest we fall. And the only way that we'll ever have peace is if we have the Lord's presence with us. Even the original disciples had this problem. They were rarely as strong as we think they were. You remember the Lord told them that he was headed for the cross, that he would die. And when he did, he would leave them to the inevitable persecutions they would face. And he warned them about this constantly during his three years of instruction. So they were anxious about the information concerning his death. He said that he was going away. And some of them said, well, we want to go with you. We want to go where you're going. And Jesus said, you can't do that. And this, this was because, I mean, they wanted to be with him because that's when they felt secure. They, they were sure of his power. They'd seen that. They felt secure when Jesus was with them, but without him, they were afraid. And so in the hours before his death, John recorded three chapters of Jesus' final instructions to the, to the disciples to comfort them and bring them peace because he was leaving. And do you remember how those three chapters begin? John chapter 14 and verse number 1, the Lord says, Let not your heart be troubled. And and that's how the good news begins of what he would do for them. Let not your heart be troubled. And what were these instructions? Well, he said that he was going away, but he was not going away. How was that possible? Well, he said that he would be present with them, By giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that would bring them peace. If they relied on the Holy Spirit, then they would have peace in their hearts. And this would take them through every circumstance that they would experience, every persecution that would be there, every problem that they have. The Holy Spirit in them would be his presence that would bring them peace. And so this is what he says in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He's not talking about the peace of the world, a peace that's never sustainable. He's not speaking of a passing peace. This is not the fleeting peace that some people find in the bottom of a whiskey bottle or a pill bottle or altered states of consciousness. This is not to be lost in the mindlessness of pornography and video games. No, this is to be supernaturally visited by the Holy Spirit of God. Horatio Spafford expressed it ably in his hymn, It is well with my soul. Uh, He just lost his children who were drowned in a ship crossing the Atlantic, and he wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, with sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And when God's peace attends the soul, There's nothing that can shake our confidence that forever our souls are well with God. And that's what I want to get across to you today. You can always trust God. In your bleakest moments, in the worst of times, whatever God does with you is always for your good. God is good to you. Just as he writes in in Romans and says, All things work together for good to them who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. God brings peace. At the end of January, my good friend and brother-in-law passed away from COVID. And like you, I read many of the stories of, of how awful that a COVID death is and For many, it's the physical suffering, then coupled with that is the anguish of and mental suffering of families that couldn't be with their loved ones, dying loved ones. And it's hard to reason in our, in our understanding how good and honorable people die prematurely. Good Christians, and certainly my brother-in-law was one of the finest Christians that you would, could have ever met. And how, how could that happen? And we, 
we can't find answers with our own reasoning. We, we do know that life belongs to God, and we must trust him that God is always just in the way that he deals with our lives. My sister grieved her husband's death, but never did she blame God for it and thought that it was wrong. Now, she did tell me that she reflected many times on conversations that she had with Fred as, as he grew older, and... Uh, they knew and they discussed this, that someday, and they were old, and someday, probably not too far away, God would call them home. But she said, that's, that's okay. And we know that it's okay because Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. And that's the way that God deals with his children. The outcome, no matter what it is, is not harmful for our souls. Nothing will harm us to the destruction of our souls or deprives us of any good that we need. God always has our best interest in mind. It's always well with our soul in life or in death. I want to tell you, though, that Paul did not write this letter to comfort unbelievers. There is no comfort for them. There's nothing for the unbeliever but fearful anticipation of judgment, fiery indignation, the word of God says, and it will devour those who don't trust in Christ. And so there is no peace for these people in their lives. They can't reckon with all the consequences of death. Oh, the best that they have is a, is a false hope. And then finally they die and they experience the living death of eternal turmoil. Oh, the peace that Paul speaks of is the confidence that our God is the God of eternity. That all belongs to him. He gives quietness and calmness and assurance that can never be taken away. Not when you have your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But Paul knew they, they couldn't handle this in human reasoning. There's no way to do that. Only Jesus himself, God himself, the Lord himself, he says, will give you peace. So looking back at John 14 through 16 and what the disciples were going through, thinking like they thought, does it really matter whether Christ is physically here today or if he's physically here tomorrow? Is there any need for us to worry about the day of the Lord or anything in the future that's coming? Oh, there's no need for us to be concerned whether the Lord is here on earth or if he's in heaven. There's no need to concern because if we abide in him, he's always with us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is the Lord with us. Well, with this, this introduction, I want to spend just a, a few minutes in this, uh, look at this short letter and see the areas in which God brings us peace. Now, I think first... And most obvious, now that we know the cause of much of the trouble in Thessalonica, is that God brings peace in persecution. This seems the most obvious, because what we've done for weeks is to talk about the persecution of the Thessalonian church. Now, if you care to look in the first chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the apostle writes, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet. That means simply that it's fitting for us to talk about this because that your faith groweth exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. The apostle says, I know you are in persecutions and tribulations. Looking at the history of God's people, it is simply amazing the attitudes that Christians can take in the worst of sufferings. And we haven't seen the troubles that our forefathers saw. In America, we we haven't seen what it was like for them to be forced to leave their homes and cross a treacherous sea to find peace to worship as their consciences dictated. We're blessed as American Christians that we've been protected from, from these things, from, from many of the things that our Christian forefathers experienced. 
And though we have been protected from that, we often complain as if our heads are the ones on the chopping block. You think things are really hard for us. But in some parts of the world, religious persecution looks more like the dark ages of the 21st century. There are people going through horrible things around this world, but all is well with us because we live here. We don't identify well with that. We, we, we were out of church for almost a year, but there's nobody said you can't preach. No one said you can't fellowship. You, 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 you're just prevented from acting like Christians. Nobody said that to us. And, and it wasn't like that, though, for Baptists in previous centuries throughout history. Millions of Baptists suffered in the Dark Ages. They were tortured and killed with ingenious methods. Uh, if you don't know that, take some time to read Fox's Book of Martyrs and, and get an unabridged version and read about this, how believers suffered their, from persecutions and they still would not give up their faith even though they suffered it in human tortures. And I use that word inhuman. I say inhuman tortures when in fact this is exactly what humans do when the devil is the one who controls them. They persecute the people of God. Now interestingly, the Apostle Paul explained persecutions, what to expect and why we should expect it. In Philippians Chapter 1, he said, your adversaries will try to terrify you. And what happens when they do? Well, he says, when they, when they do this, that's when your faith will be known. This is when people will see the real God that you serve. They'll see your strong faith, and they won't understand how you do this. They don't understand how you have peace and calm. He said, you are blessed to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Now, our Lord said, when they persecute you... They persecute me, for you are in me. When they punish you, they are punishing me. When they revile you, they revile me. But the end will be the same for you as it is for me. Jesus said, and the word says, he'll be exalted. He'll be up on high. All knees will bow to him. And one day, that's what will happen to the people of God. As we are in Christ, they bow before us as well. So the apostle says in verse number 7, you're troubled, but you can rest. You can rest with us. You can have peace like us. The Lord will come with his vengeance. In verse number 9, he says, your enemies will be punished with everlasting destruction. Now we all know that what we should do, we should pray for our enemies. We should earnestly pray for their salvation. But in the end, if they don't trust Christ, we know that God is just in the way that he deals with them. And then we're at peace because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And then if I might make this observation about what would happen if we did experience Dark Ages type persecution... Now, in other, other parts of the world, that's what they endure. Well, what would we do if the same thing happened to us? Maybe it will. I don't know. Maybe America will, American Christians will find themselves in, in that place. And the question is, would we hold out faithful if that should happen to us? Well, I, I can tell you that if you aren't faithful to your church in these days, when it's relatively easy when there is no persecution, if you can't live a holy, sanctified life in this church, then I doubt that you would keep the faith. And in fact, I think there would be reason to doubt that you are even in the faith. Isn't this what the Word of God tells us to do? Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And when you examine and you find that there's nothing there, then what are you going to pin your hopes on? If you can't find anything there, what's the basis of assurance? Without proof, there is no peace. But then if you're faithful now, if you are faithful to God's word, if you are overjoyed that you can be in church, that you can meet with God's people, then I can tell you if that time comes, God will give you the grace to hold on. You see, the disciples weren't quite sure of that while Jesus was with them. It wasn't until he was gone that they found out the peace that they could have because God in the Holy Spirit was with them. 
So Jesus told them, you'll be brought before councils, you'll be brought before governors, and you'll be judged. But he said, you don't really need to worry about what you say. We'll say because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And I think that he meant in that as well, that the Holy Spirit will give you the courage to withstand it. You don't need to be afraid of it. God will give you grace. God will settle your soul. His word will rise in you to extinguish all of that fear. And it will be well with your soul. And that, folks, is really the key to how millions of martyrs through the years went to their deaths and still held on to their faith. It wasn't their own strength. They weren't any people that were different than any of you. Yet they held on through it all because the Holy Spirit was with them. The Lord himself, Paul said, the Lord himself will give you peace. Now, secondly, is peace in God's plan? In chapter 2, we can see how God orchestrates his plan. And there we learn that God will deliver us from the wrath to come. Now, we learned, as we studied this, that God has a plan for this world. And that plan is to get it ready for his righteous kingdom that will cover this world as waters cover the sea. Some are confused about God's plan. And they'll they'll have their prophecy seminars and they try to explain how they think that God will end the world. And they will tell you that the things that we see around us now, those are the signs of Christ's coming. And so what they do many times is place the falling away and they place the tribulation in this time, in the church time. And just like the lies that were told to the Thessalonians, they hope that by doing this they can bring people to Christ by the fear of judgment. Just things that God brings in the world that just causes you to fear. Maybe they'll turn to Christ. Now, I listened to AOC, who said that the world will end in 12 years if something isn't done about climate change. Greta Thornburg, a brainwash, washed, wet behind the ears teenager, is invited to, uh, invi- invited to sit in on climate change summits and give her opinion. And what do we hear? Alarm! Always alarmed. The world is going to end. As if this whole thing is is a random happening and that we have the liberty to stop it. We can stop the world from being destroyed. Well, folks, there should be alarm, but not because of those things. That's not what we should fear. We should fear what will happen to this world when God takes hold of it and works according to his plan because there is no one who has the authority to stop it, to start it, to do anything with it. Only God can do that. You don't need to fear climate change. You need to fear God. That's the one we need to fear. So there should be some alarm. There should be fear God. Now chapter 2 then is about the Antichrist and his deception and his lying wonders and it's about the power of Satan. Oh, there's much reason for unbelievers to fear. You just read Revelation, there you see death and destruction and you see the deprivation of a world that's under God's judgment. You read about the apocalypse, you read about Armageddon and then you read about the torments of the second death in hell. All of that is true. But most people don't care to know it. Most people don't understand it, don't care to hear about it. We, we know Christ. And we know that there is not one event of the future that God did not plan. And not one that isn't for the benefit of his people. We know what comes afterward. And we're not afraid because we also know we'll rule and reign with Christ. So we're at peace with our future. We're at peace with God's sovereign plan. Jesus said, rejoice that your reward is in heaven. The psalmist said, great peace have they which love thy law. Nothing shall offend them. Nothing troubles us because it's well with our souls. So we think, does God destroy the world? Does God save the world? Does God recreate the world? What difference does it make in his love for me? It makes no difference at all how God does it, what he does. Does his plan include anything that will harm me? And the answer to that is no. There's nothing that's going to harm me. I'm safe. It's well with my soul. 
Eye has not seen, it's not entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared for me in this life and in the life to come. God's plan is an eternal plan. He created the world, He put people in it, He chose a people for His name before the foundations of the world were laid, and then He proceeded to unveil that plan piece by piece in the way that He would bring His people to glory. I really don't need to know all the parts of it in one setting. I'm content to see as much as he allows me to see. So I don't go to fortune tellers. I don't go to prophecy seminars. I don't go to the forecasters and learn how they envision that the world will end. They've deciphered no hidden codes in the scriptures. Why do I need to know all of these things when God is in control? That plan is in place and it will proceed just as God plans. So where God is going with that, we know in part, some of it's revealed in the Word of God. We don't know all of the details. The song that we sing about the Holy Spirit says, Give me hope for what I cannot see. We walk by faith, not by sight. We're going to a place that we've never seen. And God determined it, and it shall be. And because He did, I have peace. Now thirdly, is peace in patience. Now again, going back to the first chapter in verse number 4, we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience. I think one of the hardest verses in the Bible is Paul's testimony when he said, I don't speak because I lack anything. He said, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And when you understand the circumstances of that, of that verse, he wrote it while he was in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. And as we would say it, we'd say, that's all right, no problem. I don't need anything. What Paul learned to do is whatever predicaments he had or he was in, he would use to his advantage. In any state that he found himself, he used that as a peculiar opportunity to share Christ in different ways. Now remember, his life was Christ. And so he said, I'm in prison, that's all right, because prison has given me the opportunity to speak to servants in Caesar's household. It's given me the opportunity to speak to those guards that are with me 24-7. So he endured with patience, knowing there's a better day coming. Now you listen to him as he closes out the Roman letter. He says in Romans 16.20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Just wait a while. He says, be patient. When you're sick, be patient. When you're alone, be patient. When you're without a job, be patient. You know, I, I, I comfort myself, and my wife does as well in her illness, by just being patient. And I'll tell you, sometimes it's very hard to do. We can become very, very impatient with all that she goes through and those difficulties. So we have to be reminded of this frequently, just be patient. And I look at our lives and I see, well, we, we don't have much time left. Our youth is gone. We'll soon go the way of all who are born into the world. We must die. And we patiently wait for our change to come. Job was afflicted, wasn't he? Job didn't understand. James said, you've heard of the patience of Job. And Job didn't understand. He didn't know what God was doing with him. And his miserable comforters sure didn't know. And so Job says in Job 14, 14, If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. I will wait. With patience, I'll wait till the change comes. You know, James had much wisdom in the letter that he wrote. He said, just wait it out. Trust God. Let patience have its perfect work. Let the Lord do what needs to be done to perfect you. And then in chapter 4, he goes on and says, Well, your life is but a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. 
Well, we didn't really concern ourselves, he's telling us, with today or tomorrow. Don't worry about that. The Lord's will will be done. Now, while we're waiting, we may not be too pleased with the way that God does things. It may be so hard for us right now, and we don't really like what we're going through. When God's exercising that will, it's difficult sometimes, but all of that is part of maturing in the Lord and learning to trust Him for everything that He does. And so we may be sick, and we may be poor. We may lack what our neighbor has. But the message is, why be troubled? Peace will come to your heart if you just wait patiently for it. It will come in the end. So you know what God said. Everything's going to be yours. You have the inheritance of Jesus Christ. And folks, that is not a vapor that passes away. That's yours for eternity. Just wait. It'll be yours. The Lord himself will give you peace. Well, then what about all these present circumstances when life is upside down and turbulent? Oh, the Bible answers that. I I quoted Philippians 4 a moment ago. We hear something else that Paul says there. He says, be careful for nothing, verses 6 and 7, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When you are impatient, pray. Thank God for everything, no matter what it is, and he'll bring you peace. Well, our fourth observation about peace through all means is peace with God's program. Now, point number two was about God's plan, and I I speak of that plan as an eternity past to an eternity future plan. As God is outside of time and space, he's infinite and eternal. Well, he's the one that's like the watchmaker that sets everything in order, makes everything work. Now, I want to talk then about the program within the plan. And there are several of these. There are various parts of his program. In the Old Testament, his program was Israel. And so he worked through this one tiny nation only through Israel. That's the entire Old Testament. Now, he used other nations for his purposes, but it all had to do with Israel. Now, that, that program is coming back. It'll come back during the Millennial Kingdom. And that's when God establishes Israel in a worldwide kingdom, where he will be, of course, the king. But for these past 2,000 years, his program has been his church. And when I speak of the church... I speak of Christian believers who are covenanted together in local congregations that are committed to the ordinances of Christ and they are historically connected to the first church at Jerusalem. You see, the New Testament church is always the body of Christ in its locality. The New Testament knows of only two bodies of Christ. One is his physical body. The other is his spiritual body, the church. And that spiritual body is always manifested in physical bodies in one place, such as the Berean Baptist Church. Now, God's program in the New Testament age is his church. And this is the reason that Paul went everywhere preaching the gospel and organizing believers into bodies that were in fellowship with each other. The church has the responsibility, as we learn in First Timothy, of being the pillar and ground of the truth. And there isn't an individual who can be the pillar and ground of the truth, and so thus an individual is not the church. The church is the assembly of believers. That's the church. And God has a program for the church, for this body of his, and that program is to make disciples, to baptize them, And teach them to observe all of his commands. That's the commission that we find in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Now it's my observation that most churches aren't particularly good at all of those parts. We consider ourselves to be a teaching church, and I believe that we're pretty good at teaching the Bible, I hope. 
We want you to understand the Bible. And the part that Paul spends an extended portion of this letter on is the same as he does in his other letters. Now, obviously, Paul preached to make disciples and baptize disciples, although he didn't emphasize how many he baptized or didn't even remember all that he baptized. But he does talk a great deal in all of his letters about commandments and about holiness, about sanctification. This is all throughout his letters. And what that shows us is that a Christian can never be settled and never have peace of mind if he does not obey the Lord. Why? Well, because God won't let you have peace. He doesn't let the disobedient have peace. And so there's always turmoil in the lives of disobedient Christians. They experience chastisement. They're never at rest. Not until they surrender all that they are and give all that they are wholly to the Lord. Without that, peace is lost. Contentment is lost. Assurance is lost. And folks, that is no way to live. It's no way for a Christian to live. God's not going to pass over this and let you buy with it. He's not going to let you be calm and peaceful. Disobedience to commandments puts you out of sorts with the church. And it also endangers the blessings of the Lord upon the entire congregation. In chapter 3, Paul said, we can't let disobedient Christians stay in the church. Verse 14 says, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Now since the church is the body of Christ, to be out with the church is to be out of communion with Christ. The disobedient are not in the will of God, and that is a condition that causes God to hide his face from them. God is distant from them. And it's not that God has moved, of course. It's that the believer has moved. And what happens is they have no peace because in that condition, they never seek God. They never look for his face. They never desire him. So how would there be peace if the purpose of your life is to glorify God and that's why God saved you and you leave that purpose unfulfilled? The scripture plainly says to be spiritually minded is life and peace. In other words, the result of sanctification is peace. And so God's program for you, once you have become a believer, is steadfast obedience to him through the work of the church. It is peace that is inextricably tied to righteousness. Those go together. They can't be separated. Psalm 85.10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. So you observe the Christian who is restless and tossed about and can't find satisfaction, where there is no peace, just look behind that, look behind it, and always there will be found an unholy life. God brings peace and comfort in the worst of trials to those who obey his commandments, but no comfort to those who don't. When we delight in the law, there is peace. Obedience is the key to so many aspects of successful Christian living that we wonder, how is it that so few churches preach about this anymore? How is it that nobody talks about sin anymore? And so you find people in churches that are at home in the world. The world is fine with them. They do everything the world does. And so you find precious little difference between the person who goes to church and the one who doesn't go to church. People that never darken the door don't look much different than people we have going to church. I saw something interesting in a Christian periodical uh, during the days that were leading up to the Super Bowl. Now, I'm not nitpicking one person, but this was a public article. It was a published article. I think it's fair to comment on that, something that's published and public. And this article was about how there were many devoted Christians who were playing on this year's Super Bowl teams. And that was taken from public statements that many of these players made. So this article was talking about Patrick Mahomes, 
who's the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, and the article said that he is a devout Christian. And I had read this in other places by his own testimony. He was raised in a Christian home. Uh, Faith is important to his family. Well, someone wrote in the comment section below the online article something that wasn't mentioned in the article. And this person wondered, what is what, what was the criteria that this religious magazine used to determine if a person was a devout Christian? And then he queried, is a devout Christian one who lives with his fiance before marriage? One who has uh, expecting an illegitimate child? Now, I don't know all the circumstances surrounding that, but that's a fair question, isn't it? Who is a devout Christian that disobeys one of the most often discussed commandments in the scriptures? I, I, I dare say that churches don't ask that question any longer. They just don't ask it. Most churches don't care if you live in adultery. It doesn't matter to them. And yet sexual sin is one of the central issues for which Paul said people should be disciplined and put out of the church. So, so how... Do you, do you consider that person a devout Christian who does not confess his sin and turn from that sin? And that's exactly what I mean. There is no sense of obedience in following scripture and still people make the claim, yeah, I'm a devout Christian. Just ask me about my faith. Is that a devout Christian? I don't see that in the scriptures. I don't, I don't see anything like that. The Lord himself does not give peace to those who are not spiritually minded. And bear in mind, I'm not talking again about something that you do in your own strength. You'll never be spiritually minded in your own strength. Oh, it takes following scripture, understanding scripture, knowing that the Holy Spirit lives in you. And it's the Holy Spirit's goal in you to bring you a sancti- to a sanctified Christian life. So I I think the scriptures draw different conclusions than what this article said. If you don't live according to God's laws, if you are not sanctified, you might want to check that label to see if you're a devout Christian. Probably you might need to remove the sticker that says you're a Christian at all. Well, my time's up, and so I must conclude. God's program for you that will bring peace to your life is to see where he's going and follow him. It's to walk in his steps and not to stray off that path. There's much trouble on all sides. You stick, you get off the path, there is trouble. Walking contrary to God's ways will lead you in a path of despair, not in peace. So it could be persecution. It might be that you fall prey to false teachers. It, it may be false doctrines. It might be that you spend all your time worrying about what's going to happen. Always worrying about the future. And then again, it might be you that Paul's describing in the scriptures. You are the troubler in the faith. Remember what Elijah said to to Ahab? You're the one that troubles Israel. And if you're a disobedient Christian in the church, you could be the one that brings trouble upon us. So the answer to all of this is the Lord himself will give you peace. And he doesn't say, get baptized, then you'll have peace. Take communion, then you'll have peace. Give a double tithe, and then you'll have peace. I personally recommend that. You need to try that one. But uh, give that, and then you'll have peace. Nothing brings peace but the Lord himself. If you obey him, you'll find yourself knowing and doing all the things that I just mentioned. So what troubles you? What is it that gets you down and keeps you down? Identify that problem. It's always a problem in one or more of these areas. Faith, love, and hope. And it will not be right, and there will never be peace until God's grace rules your life. And so Paul says in the last verse, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And thus ends Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church. And this ends our sermon series, Living in the Light of Christ's Return. And it may be the end of the series, but it's not the end of this subject. No, we'll, we'll deal with this and as long as we live in this world. Until Jesus comes, we'll be dealing with this. And we won't end the fight that we have with Satan over our sanctification. 
until we either die and be changed and go to be with the Lord or that change comes through Jesus Christ appearing in the skies to take his people out of this world. So I say to you, may the peace of God be with you as you patiently wait for the Lord to come. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word that we have received today. Thank you for what you've written there that for all these centuries have brought hope and peace and comfort to your people. And as I said earlier about reading your word, we, we do need this because this is where we find everything that you've told us to do, every way that we can be right with you, everything that is good for us is found in your word. Lord, help us to be good students of it. I pray for people in our church. We know, Lord, that there are problems, there are issues that arise from time to time. I'm so thankful for the people that we have here today, that through all the adversity that we've seen, that we still had members of the church, even after a year of not being able to meet, when that time finally came, here we are, back together, and rejoicing in the fellowship of your church. Help us, Lord, to serve you acceptably, to do it as you tell us to do, and Lord, to keep our minds always upon your coming. Faith, love, and hope. And may that be the, the, the markers of our lives, the sanctification of our souls, to trust in you alone, trust in you for all things, and to have the hope of your return, and then to love the brothers and sisters in Christ as you require of us. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. Bless our people. Give us a good week as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.